0: afternoon or evening this is Scriptlock, where we talk about storytelling in video games and i am nick volkman i'm max volkman today's guests are charlene putney and Jana sloan van geest charlene is a writer at larian studios where she's worked on divinity original sin one and two she's also a university lecturer on interactive fiction and rpgs and is currently writing a speculative fiction novel Yana is a game writer and narrative designer, having worked on Battlestar Galactica Squadrons and Assassin's Creed Origins, and she's currently at Guerrilla Games, where she just finished working on Horizon Zero Dawn, The Frozen Wilds. She's also the founder of the Game Writing Incubator at Pixels in Montreal. Thanks for coming on the show, you two. Thank you. So we'll start off with Yana. How did you get into writing for games?
1: Uh, Well, it was a circuitous path. I started out my career in theater, and I worked in the field for eight years. And then I had been working in theater administration and fundraising, but uh, really wanting to do my own artistic projects on the side. But finding that too demanding to combine with a full-time office job, I thought I would hang out my shingle as a freelance editor. But in order to do that, I wanted to first accumulate some professional editing experience. And so uh, through a former colleague at the theatre where I was working at the time, I was referred for a localization editing job at Gameloft Montreal. And uh, so I began my career as a local, in the localization department rather than as a writer. But about three months after I started working at Gameloft, I was like, video games are awesome. I wish I had been in video games this whole time, because I played a ton of video games as a kid and then I took about a 10-year hiatus from the hobby, and then I picked it up again about two years before I started working in the field, and uh, I was, I'm so excited to be part of it. Um, I just find it's this incredibly dynamic field, and uh, I never considered a career as a writer, honestly. It's just that, uh, you know, writing was something that I did a ton of growing up. I always found it really natural and easy to the point where it didn't occur to me that I might do it as a job, but then when I'm entered the, uh, the field of video games in a more indirect manner, that was what corresponded best to my existing skill set, and I wanted to take on a more creative role. So for about three years, I participated in the incredibly welcoming Montreal indie games community. Uh, I talked to a lot of working game writers who were all extremely generous with their time. Uh, pretty much everyone I reached out to uh, as a game writer working in Montreal agreed to have a coffee with me which is amazing to me now when I look back on it, because so many of them get so many of these requests. So I had a lot of mentorship. I participated in a lot of community events. And after about almost four years as a localization editor, I got hired as a writer at Ludia, another mobile company in Montreal where I did the Battlestar Galactica game. And that was the beginning of my career as a
2: writer.
0: Charlene, how did you get into writing for games?
2: Um, well, actually, much like Jana, it was a pretty circuitous route for me as well. Um, so I used to be a, a project manager in Google for years. And then when I left there, I worked in Facebook as a product manager for a good few years, working on, like, right-to-left localization of the site. And then I left because I wanted to write a fantasy novel five years ago last week. Uh, which oh, i Which is same the same novel that you mentioned earlier. Yes, I'm still working on that one. And I realized pretty early on that... Uh, you can't really make enough money to live um, sitting at home by yourself, writing fantasy novels. (laughs) So um, I kind of started to get really involved with the local game dev scene here in Ireland and going to interactive fiction meetups and got a few jobs in smaller games. And then one day uh, after I'd been doing that for like a year and a half, I saw a tweet from uh, Sven Vinske. That's our glorious leader at Larian. And one day he posted saying he was looking for someone who could write non linear narrative beats. And somehow, On that one particular day i just had enough confidence to write back and go hey that's me i can do it (laughs) and uh sent in my portfolio and sven hired me as a freelancer to write um combat barks and item tooltips for original sin 1 enhanced edition and then i was i was brought into the company as a real member of the writing team uh for original sin 2 just over three years ago about three years and a month ago Nice. Let the record show that I got my job, my first writing job through Twitter as
1: well. My my job at Ludia was through a posting on Twitter.
2: Yeah. So I, I it's kind of amazing. You just gotta be like looking out for the opportunities. But like I always say to my students as well, it's like, yeah, I got I got my job by looking at that tweet, but I also had a portfolio that I've been building for two years. You know, right. ready to go. So
0: I was gonna say this question for later, but now that you mentioned Barks, Charlene, like a question for both of you. What makes a good bark?
1: That's so hard. Barks are incredibly difficult to write.
2: I will say that the thing that makes a good bark is the terror of a deadline looming on your <laughs> shoulder. And, uh, and knowing that you still have another 2,300 to write before the end of the week <laughs> um, leads to some really good ones. Um, I don't sure. know. I wrote, yeah, I wrote like 2,000, I think 2,800 or something for Original Sin 1. And wow. some of them were I really like, like, you know, I don't know, there's one one for archery that's like, how many eyes does a bull have or something like that. But then there's other ones, like for healing, that my students who all play Original Sin 2 still laugh at me about, which is, I think, there's one like, a stitch in time, eh, my friends? And yeah, <laughs> it's like their class motto is laughing at me about that one. So <laughs> you win some, you lose some.
1: I've mostly been spared from the terror of writing barks, so my career has been mercifully light on them, but I think, yeah, there's just a certain point where you're like, I'm just going to write this, like, I don't even care anymore, uh, because then you kind of count on someone else to weed out the the ones that are too random or pull too much focus, because I, I, to take a more serious approach to a question, it's a remark that adds to the ambience of the game, but doesn't pull focus too much, because... If they're too unusual and then they repeat, they will pull focus. So they have to be simple and they have to be uh, suited to the environment. And uh, ideally, they should be timely, but you can't control that.
0: Yeah.
2: And that you can't one that's the thing that I found hardest was like when I did it for original sin one was that each thing had 10 different versions of the voice bark and so yeah I mean you can like have some random ice spell and write four really good two combat barks for that and then you start to get a little bit you know creatively worn out you try and think of number nine and ten it's really scraping the bottom of the barrel yeah I find nine and ten are really bad and
1: then when you get to, like, 15 or 16, you're like, oh, man, this is some new territory. I didn't know that my mind held these caverns and realms. It's so exciting. And then and you get really depressed again.
2: <laughs> like you go on to, like, 17, 18, 19 plus. It's like a, a kind of a metaphor for the writing process in general, you know, like the peaks and troughs that constantly await.
0: <laughs> Do both of you think that writers should be in charge of, like, when are writing barks, that they're in charge of the timing of when barks are heard and show up?
1: Mm, I think it should be a collaboration. I yeah. would like to see the writer have influence on the timing of barks, but I don't think that they should be solely responsible because, above anything else, barks are meant to complement the level design and mechanics.
2: Yeah, I mean the thing is, I guess for our team we're 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 a bit bigger now than we were when I started, but like we we're still very very close knit and everything is done with extreme collaboration and iteration across all departments. So I wouldn't say anybody has the final word on anything except Sven, you know? Well, there's
1: one thing that a writer can bring to the process of uh, incorporating uh, feedback on the timing of parts and that is comedic timing, because I think that uh, maybe other disciplines are, have higher priorities. The priorities that lie in other areas. So, um, you know, I remember my, my friend who's a writer, was a writer on Far Cry 5, telling me that uh, when she was showing... Uh, or when the team was showing a level that she'd written some bars for there was one that fired at the perfect time and it made everyone laugh and uh, you can't always control that but hopefully a writer being part of the process
2: can nudge it in the right direction
0: hopefully yeah charlene what's the secret to writing a good tooltip
2: um well i i really love writing tooltips actually because it's it's one of the the things that is my responsibility on the team so I really enjoy just getting a big batch of of items and getting to to write them. um I kind of think it's a sensual appreciation of the item in question, so like I wouldn't write a tooltip blind. I'll go in to the editor, I'll pick it up, I'll think about how it feels, you know, and then to describe it and to add a little layer of mystery. you know, I think you always want that little layer of mystery. I mean obviously the absolute you know zenith of tooltips is um, Dark Souls 3 um, and the way that they tell the whole world to those items. Um, I mean, that's generally what to aspire towards, I think.
0: That's a way better answer than we thought. <laughs> um, what are both your writing processes like?
1: Uh, mine involves a lot of panicking. That's normal? Yeah. I mean, for me, it all starts with the research. Like, I have a general... Task or general um, goal that I need to accomplish, and uh, I have to start looking around for inspiration in the world, uh, things that have actually happened that uh, have a link to this goal. And uh, usually, that research will take me in a completely unexpected direction, and I always find the seed. Like there's always a kernel in all the information that you can find on whatever it is you're looking up, and then I find that kernel. And uh, I sort of take it out of the context of the original document and uh, repurpose it for the task that I'm trying to complete. And uh, sometimes that can be a really exciting part of the process. And, and, and in fact, that finding that initial inspiration is really really fun. But then you have to just keep going. You have to go through the whole process, and you have to keep going, regardless of the fact that that might inspiration might flag. Uh, and that's where the work comes in. That's where. Uh, you know, if, if you're not getting paid to do what you do, then maybe you can uh, afford to stop for a while. But uh, when you're on the clock, you have to just keep going. And eventually, when you're done, it just feels really amazing. Sometimes I go back and wrote, read things that I wrote, and I'm like, I don't even know who wrote that. Like, I don't who
2: wrote that sounds <laughs> <laughs> that, too good for that's me so to be <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Are the places you go for inspiration always the same?
1: No, it really depends on what I'm doing. Like, for example, when I was looking on the Frozen Wilds, uh, I was writing uh, the data points for the world entries. And uh, so, basically, uh, in hindsight, those kind of amounted to roughly 300 word future, in near future sci fi stories. Uh, so, you know, I started out reading like scientific blogs and online journals to sort of see. Uh, what kind of technologies were uh, becoming relevant or uh, were being explored uh, that weren't currently uh, in use in our society but could potentially be in use in the next 10 to 20 years. And when I found one that seemed to have a good story hook, then I would uh, use that as the inspiration for a pitch for one of the world data points.
0: Oh, cool. And do you have prime uh, writing hours? Can you work at pretty much time, or is there a specific set of time where you're you can get your really good writing done
1: personally i am pretty useless before noon, um <laughs> but uh and, and yeah right after lunch i do really well and then i flag again around three and then around five i pick it up and then sometimes i can just stay late like i forget what time it is because i get so excited about the writing
0: <laughs> and charlene what's your writing process like
2: so it's, uh, it's pretty chaotic a lot of the time. Um, so I guess an important part of, of my writing process in, in work in Larian is that um, I don't work alone a lot of the time. Um, we're really used to working as a seven-person team. So it kind of depends on, on what it is that we're writing. But like for Core Story, that would be like the whole team of us sitting around a table and shouting at each other for a whole day and like having these big meetings to, des- to decide what our story is going to be. And they will work on it all together in several Google Docs, like but all of us typing in the same one. So it's kind of like a very pure hive mind situation. And I've gotten so used to that and so used to working in this way that I actually find it difficult now to write my own novel at home because I don't wow. have these other parts of my brain that in work I've kind of outsourced to them, you know? Yeah. Um, for dialogues, uh, well, I obviously I write the dialogues on my own. Uh, I need a lot of paper before I get anywhere near the engine. So like, I'll have like paper all over my desk. I'll sketch out all loads of stuff about my characters. I'll write down snippets of dialogue. I'll listen to music I think suits them. I have this crazy wall beside my desk I'm looking at now that's like, uh, just full of pictures and images and tarot cards and postcards and all kinds of stuff and little post-its of quotes. And uh, I'll kind of just stare at that for a while, thinking before I write anything a lot of the time. Um, then when I'm actually doing the writing, uh, I'll do very very rough drafts, like you know, write really really rough drafts without you know even capitalizing, and then I'll go back and I'll edit and I'll edit and I'll edit again, and then I'll get several of my peers to review what I've done, and give me feedback, and then I'll edit again based on their feedback before um, Sven gets to see it and decide whether or not it's it's okay to go in the game.
0: Do you outline a lot, or are like the rough drafts are outlined, or the when you're talking with your collaborators that like basically roughing out an outline.
2: Yeah, so I mean, I will rough out the outline on paper because I don't know why it is that that's easier for my brain to do, but I will uh, like literally draw out the dialogue trees <laughs> on my squared paper here at my desk um, and then like while I'm trying to figure out how it's gonna work and then put it in to the to the engine.
0: Cool. And do you have prime writing hours too?
2: Um. I do <laughs> unfortunately, they're not very handy prime writing hours um I usually tend to be good from about four p m onwards oh, so wow. I did a lot of my uh did a lot of my really good uh my best dialogues uh like last year when we did when we were kind of in crunch for original sin two and we would stay pretty late, and those would be like oh yeah i'm 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 better at dialogue at this time, but I'm much better at like core story writing early in the day. I don't know. That's why crazy. That it's just they're <laughs> totally different types of writing and they require different, different parts of my brain. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I'm good at editing in the morning. Yeah, uh, definitely different types of writing at different times of the day is, is key. And it's good to give your brain a, a variety of tasks um, to sort of, you know, I, I find like I can't do much more than four to five hours of really good creative writing in a day. So I like having other tasks. Um, to sort of refresh myself. And I also wanted to say, I think your point, Charlene, about the collaborative element of writing is super important. Uh, I haven't uh, been par- part of an approach that's similar to what you described just there, but I love getting in a room with other writers and talking about ideas. And even sometimes verbalizing my own ideas to an audience is incredibly helpful. Like, I remember one time when I was looking on Battlestar Galactica, I, I had to revise a plot line based on uh, the limitations or the the parameters of the, the game. Um, and I couldn't figure out how to do it. So I asked another writer to sit down with me. And I said, okay, here's my problem. And I went into some detail about the problem. And then I said, okay, and here's how I'm going to solve it. And then I was like, okay, I think that's it. And he's like, good talk. And I felt really <laughs> bad. But he said, don't worry, it happens all the time. I do the same thing. And yeah, sometimes you just need to articulate what you're going through to another person in order to sort of get out of the woods of your own head.
0: Yeah, just usually just explaining what you're working on. Just saying it out loud usually make you expose what the problem is and make you just realize, oh, I didn't think about what the problem actually is until I was saying it out loud verbally.
1: Mm -hmm, Exactly. It's like the difference between learning passively or learning by reading and teaching something.
0: Right. This Um, is somewhat related topic, but I've seen a lot of people on Twitter recently dealing with this. So I'd like to get both of your opinions when you're feeling down about your writing and you're getting crushed under deadlines and things just seem to be going wrong everywhere. How do you get your energy back and how do you get excited about writing again?
2: Uh, I really get a lot of support and enthusiasm and renewed excitement from my team. So um, both the writing team, but also kind of the wider Larian team in general, we're really like a very, like we're like a kind of a big family as a studio and everyone is just so supportive of everybody else that it's, uh, you know, if somebody says something mean about one of my characters (laughs) somewhere, (laughs) there's a, you know, there will always be, there's always somebody who's gonna have something nice to say here um, or will link us to like a nice, you know, Reddit thread about one of our characters or send us some fan art and that kind of thing. So it's a good team, but I think as well, I don't know being a writer you have to get pretty used to the fact that you know not everybody's gonna like everything you do yeah and uh yeah the 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 faster i wish i could have learned that a bit faster actually but the faster you can kind of divorce that from your you know your personal self uh esteem and the way in which you view yourself in the world the better
0: how big is larian
2: um we are now 120 people I think we were 45 people when I joined three years ago. Um, so we are, we are a lot bigger now, um, but it still has a very kind of cozy feel. Uh, we've got four studios, one in Dublin here where I am, one in Ghent, that's our headquarters in Belgium, uh, St. Petersburg in Russia, and Quebec in Canada.
0: Whew. Wow. How big is Gorilla, Yana? Uh,
1: it's growing pretty rapidly. I think it's approaching 300 people at this point. <laughs> but it's a nice size. I kind of think of it as like a boutique AAA. Like uh, Ubisoft Montreal is is three thousand people, uh, so oh. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to get to know everyone, uh, even everyone on the team. Because <laughs> when I was working at Ludia, the head programmer sat two desks away from me, and if I wanted to talk to him about something related to programming, I could just get up from my desk and go talk to him. When I was working on Assassin's Creed Origins, I didn't even know where the programmers sat. I'm like, I assume we have programmers; we need them to make the game, but I have no
2: idea where oh they are. Oh my god, that's amazing! That's so that's so uh, that's such an such an interesting idea to me. Uh, like because I guess I know everybody <laughs> in our studio, and like exactly who to talk to about everything. It would it would stress me out so bad if I didn't know that. Well, with
1: this- team of that size, you have to be sort of very flexible and very adaptable because there are a lot of people who have influence on your work. And uh, so sometimes you get feedback from unexpected quarters. And at first that did throw me for a bit of a loop. But uh, once I came to expect that that would happen, uh, I actually found it kind of fun and as a challenge.
0: With a team of that size, are you just primarily talking to the other writers and your leads?
1: Um, No, I mean the writing team on Origins was very close-knit, but I didn't exclusively work with other writers. I collaborated quite closely with uh, the quest designers also, and that was really amazing, and collaborating with designers is one of my favorite parts of game writing because you're both approaching this problem from different perspectives and representing different priorities, but I find that uh, nearly 100%, I can't even think of any exceptions, of the quest designers, mission designers that I've worked with are extremely sensitized to story, uh, really want to help the writers, and really want to help you realize your goals. And so sometimes you'll go into a conversation with a level designer thinking that your goals are antithetical, but it seems like there's always a way to solve the problem to represent at least some of what you wanted to represent narratively while uh, helping them represent what they want to represent from a level designer gameplay perspective and i just find that kind of cross-disciplinary problem solving so exciting and uh i think that i would feel a real loss if that wasn't part of my job
2: yeah I um, i have to totally agree with yana on that one although we have a very different process in larian like our I guess, quest designers, we call them scripters. And for Divinity Richardson 2, the way we worked was that every single situation in the game had one writer and one scripter assigned. And the two of us would kind of work together really closely. So we'd just be kind of on Skype all the time, making up our you know quest design document, uh, creating, it actually happening in the world, so the quest designer or our scripture that we call them would make it happen, and then we'd do the dialogue. But together we'd make it. You know, oh, maybe they'll be like this, and maybe they'll say this, and what if the treasure was this? And it was just a really amazing collaborative process, uh, like really close, a close networking relationship. That uh, yeah, I would I would hate to lose.
0: How big is the Dublin studio?
2: So the Dublin team now is nine people but then I think it was six. So we have, uh, most of the writers are in Dublin. And then we have one scriptor here and our publishing team.
0: Do you know like most of the other people working at the other studios or are you yes. mostly? Okay.
2: <laughs> I do. I know, uh, I would say I know almost everybody.
0: Wow. So, Yana, like 3,000 is huge. Does 300 feel good or even too big? No,
1: three is great. 300 is the perfect size, because it means you don't run into the same people every day, but uh, you kind of have a good overview of everyone who's at the studio, so I find that that's that's exactly the right size.
0: Okay. But,
1: I mean, of course in a larger studio, like Ubisoft, the production teams themselves are smaller. Like, Assassin's Creed Origins had a huge production team, but they weren't all working out of Ubisoft Montreal. I think there were maybe even a total of seven studios, seven Ubisoft studios involved in developing the game. So the team on site at uh, Ubisoft Montreal was the largest, but I, I don't actually even know how many uh, people were assigned to that project in particular. And of course, there's always a lot of shifting between different projects. at uh, The studio that has multiple projects running at once. Yeah. But uh, you do get to know uh, the people on your team fairly well, at least the ones sitting in your proximity and the ones that you're collaborating with closely. And so I think you just sort of find your group and you find your people uh, regardless of the size of the team.
0: Okay. And to go back to the original question that spawned all this, because uh, we heard from Charlene, Yana, when you're like feeling down about your writing, how do you get excited about writing again?
1: Well, I think finding inspiration in others is key, as Charlene said. I find that it's really helpful to get fresh eyes on my work. Uh, so if another writer has the time and is feeling charitable, even in a period of high-pressure deliveries, uh, getting their feedback is always really useful for sort of breaking the uh, um, sort of restricted focus that you can sometimes have on your own work. I also find just getting out of the office for a little while can be helpful, especially if it's a nice day to go for a walk and take inspiration from what's happening in the world. Um, Emily from Telltale had a great suggestion on Twitter a while back, which I haven't used but plan to in the future. She said, go for a walk and take 100 pictures on your phone and take them from the different angles like try to capture everyday objects in a different light and uh then go back and uh, try your writing again and of course like it happens that I slave away all day at work and you know feel like I've mostly come away from my day staring at a blank page and then I go home and have a bath or something and I get the answer to the problem that I was trying to solve and I come back in the next day with renewed inspiration
0: yeah like for us Trying to do something that is as far away from writing, especially the subject while we're writing, and just doing something differently, like cooking or gardening, that usually helps a lot. Just to focus our mind on something else and then get your mind working a different way that mm-hmm. then like helps grind the problem that you're dealing with into something close to a solution.
2: Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. And even like um I guess reading, but things that are outside of the genre that you're trying to write mm-hmm. in, I find totally. super helpful. Yeah. So, like, I mean. As you know, we write epic fantasy and uh, high fantasy, and um, I, you know I don't read any high fantasy. While we're, while I do like when we're not uh, super in in the zone, but when we're in the zone, I I read like you know Russian literature. I'll read sci-fi. I'll read I'll read anything, um, but that those kind of things I think give me that like extra perspective to kind of pull something from a different world into what we're working on, so that we're not like kind of you know rehashing cliches or uh yeah treading the same ground. Yeah. Yeah. Taking inspiration from other work is
1: incredibly important and I find reading is essential to my practice as a writer. And if I don't read high quality work on a regular basis, I feel the wells start to run dry. So I do
2: try Absolutely. to make a point of keeping up on my reading.
0: So then we're gonna do a sidetrack. What are both of you reading right now?
2: I am reading Margaret Atwood's Hagseed. Uh, <laughs> my friend gave it to me the other day and uh, it's really good so far I really like Margaret Atwood So,
1: I am reading uh, a selection of the works of Kelio Gibran. Gibran I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name right um, the uh, Lebanese sort of uh, how would I describe his writing he's a poet um, He is an essayist um, I mean a lot of people know his work he's quite well known I'm not breaking any ground here but his writing is just so incredibly beautiful and transcendent, even in translation, uh, it sort of elevates everyday moments to uh, the level of mythology. Uh, and uh, I find that I just see the world in a slightly different way after having read his work. And I have his book in my bag; I carry it with me, or I've been carrying it around with me for the past couple months. And I haven't made much progress because I feel like I just read, you know, a stanza or two and then I just need to sort of look away from the book and look at everything around me and take it in in a new way.
0: I want that in a book. I haven't had that yet.
2: What are you guys reading?
0: I just finished Born by oh, Jen Mandimir. Oh, Jeff,
2: my love. That
0: <laughs> was a, a weird book. <laughs> it was really good. And I've got a short story collection by him called The City of Saints and Mad Men that I've been meaning to finally start reading.
2: He's wonderful.
0: He is. And I'm reading The Undoing Project by, I think, the uh, author is Michael Lewis. He's the guy who wrote Moneyball and The Big Short. Ah, okay. And a bunch of other stuff. Cool. It's about these two psychologists who basically upended the way psychology is thought about in the 60s and 70s, I think. It's great so far. It's amazing. That sounds it.
2: super fascinating, actually.
0: Yeah, I recommend it to everyone. I also and, wanted to say we were talking about breaking through like creative ruts, that there is. Reading and taking walks and everything, I like to do that a lot. But I still have yet to find anything that's consistently as good as taking a long shower.
2: Uh Yoga. Yoga is awesome. (laughs) That's one of my things. So like when you just absolutely like exhaust your body and mind through, uh, I guess, yeah, physical exercise, but also the breathing Uh, and the heat and the relaxation and all those things together um, then when you're just lying there like an empty husk you know things come to you (laughs) I don't know where they come from
1: but there they are (laughs) I like what you said earlier too about doing something like cooking like a you know gentle manual task Yeah. um, something that has repetitive action that has kind of a soothing element Uh, yeah that definitely lets the mind wander in a kind of unstructured way and You know, sometimes when you're working, you're trying to force your mind into such a structure and path. You're like, no, I need to get this done. I have to write this thing. And uh, I think that that's part of the process is directing your thoughts in that way. But I think that uh, allowing your mind to wander is an equally important part of it.
0: It's like letting it wander lets it be more receptive to new ideas and new thought processes than you might have had before when you're just working and more focused.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can always go back to the world, like the world is just such an endless source of inspiration. And uh, sometimes it's just you and the page, and uh, that can be really scary. But uh, I find as soon as I get out there and look at other things, then I come back refreshed.
0: You both taught game writing in various ways. What do both of you believe are the fundamentals of game writing that students or anyone starting out should know and understand?
2: For me, the most important thing is that being a good games writer is being a good writer first and foremost, um, so that people should practice being a good writer before they do anything else. So usually when I start off my classes, I'll get my students to do the morning pages exercise from the artist's way um, and like really work with that for a few weeks, like really strongly as kind of, you know, a palette cleanser for the subconscious, Um, working on just being a good writer first. and then when you try to be a good writer and you try and move that into games, I think the thing that's most important there is that you offer meaningful choices. So a story I have about that is when I teach interactive narrative in university, um, I usually get my students to do a Twine game. I don't know if you know Twine. It's a, or if the listeners know Twine, I'm sure you guys know what Twine is. (laughs) (laughs) Twinery.org. It's like a very, it's a lovely free tool for making kind of simple interactive Um, choice-based stories and so I had 40 students in my class last year and for the first one that they did now bearing in mind they all did this in class they couldn't have been copying from each other they all had the exact same choice 12 of them out of the 40 had the same choice for the start which was you know you're basically you're asleep in bed And uh, are you going to hit the snooze button or get up? (laughs) That leads to like a really interesting conversation with the students about like, well, this is not a very good choice because it's just a loop, right? If you hit the snooze button, what's the next choice gonna be? And so trying to get them to think about what actually meaningful choices are and how you can present those to players is to me, uh, like if you can write well and you can do meaningful choices, then you can be a games writer And so an exercise that I usually do with them to try and get them to do that, is uh, what I call the 50-50, which is try to think of a choice that you can present people with. That 50% of the people in the audience will choose one side of the binary choice and 50% the other side. And it's harder than it sounds, um, Mm -hmm. but you can make really good choices out of it. So they come up with all kinds of of crazy uh, ideas and choices for that. And uh, that leads usually to them writing much better. Interactive Fiction for the final year project. Charlene, thank you for answering this question first. Gave me time to think about my answer.
1: (laughs) 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 Choice has been a less significant element of the game writing I've done. So I would say my answer would be less focused on that. Although I do think that making uh, Interactive Fiction, flying games or any other interactive fiction tool is a really vital thing for every game writer to do. Uh, or especially aspiring game writers. But um, there are lots of ways to become a good writer, and I think that the most important one is just volume. Like, the more I write, the better I become at writing. It seems like it's an inevitable process. And uh, then you have to bring your judgment to it, and you hone your judgment by reading and by discussing writing with people who are better writers than you. And uh, then when it comes to games specifically, I think that uh, you have to just sort of realize that your work is one element of the process. I found that the thing that I've needed to work on the most in my development uh, as a game writer is less the writing part, that just sort of seems to come on its own, and more the negotiation part and the collaboration part. You have to be a good collaborator in order to be a good game writer and uh, you have to be able to come up with creative solutions to problems and uh, you know it can be really tempting to get into the loop of pushing forward your ideas but I've had a lot more success when I've taken the approach of saying uh, yes uh, how can we make this a a good outcome for both of us. So yeah improving my negotiating skills and improving my collaboration skills and it, just my emotional management skills overall has been really significant for me because it is crushing when content you've worked really hard on gets cut from the game. And that is not specific to writers. That happens to people of every discipline. Yeah. Uh, but it is an important part of being professional. It's like, you you know, you, you should let yourself grieve uh, the work that you've done that people will never, never see, but then you move on. And uh, you try and reinvent it if you can. And if you can't, then uh, you realize that it was still good to do the work. And it will contribute to your progress as a writer. Absolutely. uh, Which is ongoing.
0: Have there been assumptions that your students had about game writing going in that you were surprised by?
1: I wouldn't say I was surprised by them because I had exactly the same assumptions going (laughs) in. Um, I did a talk which is available online, but none of you should watch. Um, for ECGC, I think it was in 2016, Uh It was called One Year a Champion, uh, Lesson's Learned as a New Game Writer. And uh, so I'd been asked to come in and do this talk, and I was like, well, I still feel like after a year, I know very little about game writing. So uh, all I can write about, or all I can talk about are my experiences, and I went in there assuming that story was a thing to be defended at all costs and that I was responsible for that and unsurprisingly that attitude did not immediately endear me to my team (laughs) and uh, so I had to I had to change my approach and I think that I've gone through some version of that process with every game that I've worked on I, I think the turnaround is just quicker each time but I think you know people get into game writing because they love story because they're incredibly passionate about it and they, you know, think that that passion is the most important thing to bring to the process, but it kind of ebbs and flows. And uh, I also see a lot of uh, aspiring game writers coming in with the assumption, as I did, that presenting the player with difficult moral dilemmas is sort of the apex of your achievement as a game, right, game writer. Um, but I I learned a really valuable lesson from my lead on the Battlestar Galactica game, and he's like, if you make the players uncomfortable too often, they don't want to play your game anymore. Um, (laughs) I personally love games that present difficult moral choices, and I find those choices very memorable as a player, but they aren't presented at every instance. They aren't presented every five minutes. They're presented, you know, perhaps two to ten times per game depending on the genre and they stand out and are more memorable because they're in the minority so i think that uh i actually like to see writers focusing more on linear fiction at the beginning of the process because i think we've reached a point where we have such a high level of knowledge about game writing like i'm just amazed at how much students know nowadays um that they're you know they're fairly aware of choice mechanics, but they, I kind of just want to see them go back to base before they start exploring
2: those.
0: Yeah, I, I can understand that. Charlene, is there anything you're surprised by, by your students?
2: Well, I guess uh, it's probably um, kind of common across all kinds of different game students, but the one that often happens to me is that you'll, you'll get the, the, odd, the odd person who uh, thinks that they have really amazing ideas, and that <laughs> having amazing <laughs> ideas is like, well, this is what they're going to do. Uh, as the part of the team and you know uh, those are probably the, the hardest people to to kind of talk down uh to like make them understand no you're not special <laughs> <laughs> everybody has great ideas and uh, the only thing that matters is the uh, actual realization of those ideas into something yeah. that exists in the world and kind of that like that there's a, there's a gap between the people who think, you know, oh, I could do that, I could do better than that. It's like, yeah, but you didn't, you know? Like, <laughs> sit down and do the work, um, and then we'll see uh, what you're like.
0: I'm still thinking about, Charlene, what you said before about students thinking that being a good writer is not something you need to do before becoming a game writer, or that they're different Yeah, things. that they're
2: different things. and Or that, yeah, that that being a games writer is something you can do before you become a writer, but it's absolutely, I think, the other way around. You need to be a writer and then apply what you already have into
0: games.
1: Uh, you need to be a a good writer who has a good knowledge of a specific genre of writing.
0: You want that more than, like, an overview of, like, a spread-out knowledge?
1: No, I mean, a genre, I mean, I should have said form, because what okay. I meant was game writing specifically.
0: Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I would also add that students need, like, I subscribe to the Werner Herzog th- way of thinking where he doesn't want people making movies who just consume, like, regurgitate the movies they've seen as kids.
2: Yeah, for sure. And and that's the thing. It's like, nobody needs to play the game of somebody who has done nothing but play games for 20 years. You know, yeah. like that, you need to bring more stuff from the outside in. It's, yeah. I don't know. I think a lot of it is about, like, the kind of synthesis, you know, of uh, synthesis of existing art and discipline. And, uh, yeah, all the stuff you consume makes you who you are. You know, you are what you eat kind of thing and mm-hmm. so the wider and more varied and more like Jana was saying, high quality the stuff you consume the better the stuff you produce will be.
1: Yeah, I mean I said earlier that when, when I was describing my, my journey into game writing that oh I wish I'd been in games this whole time but it's not really true because I my training in theatre was completely foundational to my work as a game writer um, it informs my approach every day and I find that uh, one of my strongest traits is dialogue as a result of, you know, having studied and worked in a dialogue based art form earlier on in my life
0: Yeah, so this is I'll go back to the question I had before then What were you planning to do in theater when you were doing theater? Like did you want to be a writer or a director? Or what?
1: Well, no, actually playwriting was one of the few things I never tried my hand in in a serious way I took a playwriting class and I and I wrote a short play for that But uh, I was primarily interested in directing and I wasn't able to support myself exclusively through that. So I pretty much did almost anything that would make me money in in that particular domain. I uh, did some uh, lighting and soundboard operation. I did some stage carpentry. I did quite a bit of stage management. Um, and then as I said earlier, I went into fundraising and administration because I wanted a steady paycheck and I still do. I love getting a steady paycheck.
2: Great.
0: Same. I do too. Same. It's pretty
2: nice. <laughs> 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 I'm so tired of that, that, uh, that freelance writing lifestyle. It's just not a, it's,
0: that's what we're it's doing now. It's, oh. oh, no, it is not a winner.
2: No, oh, it's so <laughs> stressful.
0: I want to bounce back just briefly to, uh, teaching game writing. Out of curiosity, do either of you know if there are a lot of game writing programs out there? Because besides Pixels and the program you're at, Charlene, I don't really know any others.
2: Well, mine isn't actually a games writing program, it's a, it's a module within a game design degree. Uh, is one okay. of them at Dublin Institute of Technology, and then the other one is uh, in Trinity College Dublin. I teach on the Masters in Interactive Digital Media and I teach interactive narrative on that as well. So it's, a, it's, it's specifically like one is a game design degree and one is a media master's, um, but neither of them are specifically designed towards game writing. Okay. I know there are a few
1: uh, dedicated game program, game writing programs in the U.S. I had looked into some of them a few years ago, but they're quite rare. Um, and more often what you'll see is, uh, as Charlene said, a, a game writing class or module Uh, that is a part of a more pure design focused degree. But I would certainly love to see uh, game writing taught at the university level uh, across a variety of institutions. Uh, Although I'm really happy with the program that I developed for Pixels and uh, I hope it's been helpful to its alumni. Um, working with that program has been one of the most rewarding experiences of my life and I'm so glad that I did it and it continues to pay dividends every day and I learned so much from teaching and I'm sure Charlene you have this experience as well just like seeing your uh, work reflected in the eyes of other people and people who are learning like it's I feel like it's just as much as an exchange as it is anything else.
2: Absolutely I get so much energy from my lovely, enthusiastic students, like the ones who are really, really excited about games and writing, um, it just every time I'm with them, it just fills me with absolute joy. <laughs> and it's yeah, it's really special. So I do think it's an exchange.
0: Do you ever worry that they're too idealistic?
2: I mean, is it but... so wrong to <laughs> in this yeah, harsh, the right cruel world? For long to last. <laughs> yeah, just let them. Just let them think that the world is great. They're only like 19, you know. They have so yeah. many years to. <laughs> to figure out the truth. And the, the thing is that, like, it's happened to me, and then I see
1: it happen to people who come after me. That you can't really learn from anything but your own experiences. Like, you can have someone say, "Hey, maybe don't do this," and you won't really know not to do it until you do it yourself and understand why it shouldn't be done. And yeah. uh, uh, like, I, I, you know, I've, I've fallen into so many traps in my work that people have worn me off of and I just go blundering into them anyway. And then after I climb out of them, I'm like, oh yeah, that's why I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) But you have to go through that process for yourself. And I think that's true of life more broadly as well as game writing specifically.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now for a more hardcore writing question, exposition can be one of the most annoying and hardest things to write. How do you go about making sure it's not awful and a slog for the players when they're hit by it
1: so i think that um it's important to approach exposition in a way that helps dramatize relationships between characters so uh if you focus on it purely as a information delivery mechanism that's when it gets boring um but if uh another character you says something that you know the first character doesn't want anyone to know that heightens the tension and the conflict in a scene between two characters um like i'll take a, an example from my own work if i may which is um, an argument that takes place in assassin's creed origins uh in the temple courtyard of the uh great temple of memphis and uh, there's a a husband and wife arguing the husband is the high priest of memphis and the wife is pregnant but has miscarried a few times previously and uh and she's in the context of the argument i can't actually remember the exact line that i wrote but it's something along the lines of you know this can't happen again if our child dies i die you know and that like the stakes literally could not be higher um but that's the way that you learn that she's pregnant and that she's had miscarriages in the past by you know sort of bringing her own Feelings and you know her own um, investment in this particular fact about herself to the forefront in the context of this highly charged conversation. Um, so obviously not all conversations can be equally highly charged, but anything that sort of um, shows a rapport or um, builds a relationship between two characters. Uh, if you focus on that first, I think that uh, you know putting the focus on the actual information you need to convey, although it is foundational. Um, mm-hmm it will sort of come more naturally. It's not easy, it's really not easy.
0: No, it's not.
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess I could give another example um of like doing exposition through through dialogue as well, but just in a slightly different way. Um that I did with um uh the origin character that I wrote for Original Sin two, which is Ivan Ben Mezd. And there's a moment where he has a lot of backstory, <laughs> you know. He's got a lot going on in his past and it's hard to kinda, you know, eke out those moments and make sure people know them. That they're, that they're all going to happen and so there was one moment um he has a kind of a fight moment with another character uh, and in that moment uh, I used all of the different dialogue options within that um, choice the choice options in that dialogue to remember things that had happened in the past so you know you're confronted with the guy who did everything terrible to you and it's like remember when he did this and this, and what about that time, and this thing, and you know, and so it's like giving, you you get to choose one of the things that is the thing that was the straw that broke you know, your own camel's back, so to speak, but that you're giving the information in a way that isn't somebody telling you, but you remembering and deciding to act on it. If that makes sense.
0: No, yeah, yeah, it does. Yana, you talked on Twitter recently about the need for simplicity and clarity in game writing. Could you go into that here?
1: So that's another lesson I had to learn the hard way. And again, it's a lesson that is cyclical. I don't know if it ever really ends because, you know, I've heard the term new relationship energy that used to describe, you know, when you first start dating someone and you have new project energy when you go into a new project and you're like, Oh yeah, this is great. I'm so excited. I'm going to make an impact. I'm going to do all the, this great writing stuff. And so I find that in each project I've worked on, although to a lesser degree with each subsequent one, I come in just like kind of wanting to like show my chops as a writer and you know, provide players with the kind of sophisticated story experience that I want from a game. And uh, so to me, that often ends up using a lot of highly florid language and sometimes obscure terminology and maybe writing in a way that doesn't necessarily reflect how people talk. And I think find it's something I just sort of need to get out of my system at the beginning of the process because especially in the context of a game, clarity is absolutely the most important thing because the dialogue and the story are balancing against so many other elements. And of course, you want the environment and the mechanics to harmonize well to tell the story. But again, if the writing pulls too much focus, then it takes the emphasis away from those other elements and uh it obscures the meaning of what you're trying to communicate to the player. So I find uh as I go through the process of uh working on a production I become more deeply connected to the you know the themes and the messages and the meaning of uh the the project itself and the story that we're trying to tell and so that tends to find expression in simpler language and more powerful language. And uh it's always really exciting when I feel like I've gotten to that point, when I feel like I'm you know, much more deeply connected to the heart of a project. And uh, sometimes it takes a long time to get there, but uh, it feels really good when you do.
0: Yeah. Uh, is that your experience, Charlene? Or do you agree or disagree with us?
2: Um, so uh, just thinking about the kind of like the original question, which was about the um, simplicity um, of writing in games. Yeah. Um, I think like one of the ways that, that we do that is that we really have built, I guess we didn't have this at the start of when we started writing Divinity Original Sin 2, but we really built a structure in place to help us. I mean, obviously with seven writers, you know, who all have wildly different personal styles, we need to create a system in which we can all work together and have a kind of a unified voice. And so one of the kind of ways that we did that was like by creating a style guide. And in that there is definitely parts that help us with the simplicity. So like, for example, we do have one overriding theme for our main stories. And then, so we want to make sure that that theme is everywhere. And then inside of each individual like dialogue, so like one particular character who has a dialogue, that should only be about one topic. This guy standing on the corner can't be talking about X, Y, and Z. I mean, he can like as on the sideline, if you ask him about it, but his purpose has to be about one thing. And that one thing will be the crystal clear coming from him. And then from that it's like we don't write more than two lines per node of dialogue and we don't have more than three nodes in a row without a choice uh, unless there's some extreme exception that will make it like feel powerful to the player. And so actually like constraining ourselves into these kind of tiny pieces of dialogue really helps us to crystallize and clarify the message and get it across in a clean way.
0: What did your style guide look like? Was it mostly filled with those kinds of rules or guidelines or was there were there other stuff inside of it
2: yeah so it's like a gigantic google doc <laughs> like all of our stuff we're very into our google docs and uh, in this one it's got like you know I mean how we use different things like how we describe various items how characters should sound like so how different races would speak like the difference between the way a dwarf would say something or an elf would say something the way in which we the, like just the formats in which we use to write books to write tooltips to write dialogues literally everything that you can imagine that we write has little rules that we've that we created during our process together as a team uh, to adhere to
0: what tools in the storytelling toolbox do you feel are overutilized and underutilized in the games industry
2: (sighs) I mean I'd honestly like to see more narration through items. <laughs> I know it's like really? I am a broken record on that kind of thing but like for me uh, Dark Souls 3 is one of the best games I ever played in my life. It was an extremely powerful experience and the way in which the world was just slowly revealed to me over time um, through picking things up and reading about them. It just was it was so precious and so powerful that I, I would love to see more of that. For me you know I find that a difficult question to answer because you know audio logs is a
1: tempting pull from the you know list of possible examples that you gave, but Horizon Zero Dawn did an amazing job on their audio logs, uh, which I wasn't involved involved in. But uh, some of them are so powerful, and they are an essential stu- tool for revealing the uh, the story of the game, and they make sense in the context of the world. And they are beautifully written and they're movingly rendered by the voice actors. So, you know, I would like I tend to find audio logs fairly tiresome, but I've listened to those over and over again, uh, not just for study, but for my own enjoyment. So I think that any tool can be effectively used in storytelling as long as the creators are given enough time to use it thoughtfully and sort of grounded in a meaningful connection to the world of the story that they're trying to tell. Yeah, I don't think that there's a tool in the toolbox that we should ever retire. It's just that we need to find creative, meaningful, and impactful ways to use each of them.
0: Right. Yeah. And then just to backtrack to the Dark Souls with what you said, Charlene, I wonder if we don't see that a lot because maybe devs think that people aren't do not like reading like item descriptions too much or they think that it'd be easy to miss that kind of stuff?
2: I don't know. I mean, I feel like like people who are going to play, you know, giant RPGs <laughs> full of words yeah. are pretty happy to read anyway. I think yep. it's just that what they did with Dark Souls 3 was just so masterfully done and so perfect that it's incredibly difficult to, to do anything like that. Uh, I, I, I mean, I'm just in awe. Every time I think about Dark Souls 3, I'm like just... gobsmacked thinking about it so yeah
0: is there a point where there'd be too much to read for you or like you could never get enough of it
2: honestly i'm i'm way more into reading than than anything else like it's my number one hobby and i don't really care about graphics also that much so i will happily sit and 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 play a game that i need to read uh more than anything else like uh i guess yeah like lately i've been really enjoying this um caves of good game i don't know have you QUD, no. caves of QUD. Fantastic! No, it's never... it's like this beautiful old school, um, pixely kind of, massive kind of rogue or RPG kind of game from, um, that that looks like it was made in the 80s, but it like, the mechanics are amazing and the writing is just, oh, it's just spectacular. So, yeah, I just okay, just sit sit and read those, read those bits of writing all night long.
0: We'll put it in the show notes for everyone so they can check it out <laughs> but huh. i think that'll be it for our episode so for you two where can people find you on the internet uh, like what are your twitter handles
1: alphashar i'm jan jana games j-a-n-a
2: that's a much better name because you it's easy to know what that how that's spelled by listening to it see alphashar Alpha is a terrible handle <laughs> so when we had the, the
1: shorter character limit it was totally punishing when when i would reply to people i'm like oh i just lost half my tweet all right <laughs> but i'm grateful for 280 even though i complained about it before it was rolled out
0: yeah i think we all did <laughs> and what's yours again charlene
2: uh, alpha char a-l-p-h-a-c-h-a-r
0: and you can find this podcast at script podcast on twitter please review us on itunes and thank you to again for coming on today yeah thank you so much
2: thanks guys thanks a lot. it was really nice chatting